Welcome to the History of North America. I'm Mark Vinette. The Bible is the most significant book in the Western canon. It's also the book upon which the post-antiquity Western civilization was built upon, including the exploring and settlement of North America by European nations. Let's delve into the origins of this immensely important and influential book which inspired early generations of men and women to cross a perilous ocean with their few belongings, hopes, dreams, and determination. They traveled to the shores of North America for various reasons, including economic opportunity, underemployment in their countries of origin, and a desire to escape political oppression. Although modern North America is now populated by adherents to all of the world's religions, as well as secular atheists and agnostics, one should never underestimate the key role played by the Bible in the early Judeo-Christian foundation and later development of the continent's post-contact period. Gary Stevens of the History in the Bible podcast has graciously agreed to share with us his views on the history of this remarkable book. In this special episode, we examine the New Testament as we continue our deep survey of the Bible, a book that greatly shaped the colonization of North America. I want to explore the origins of the sacred documents of the Christians. The great compendium of Christian sacred scriptures is, of course, the New Testament. That this compendium exists at all is a peculiarity. The compulsion to acquire a collection of sacred texts was a Jewish idiosyncrasy. No one else in the ancient Middle East or the Roman Empire had the least inclination to do so. No Roman or Greek or Assyrian or Egyptian or Babylonian ever averred that some books contained the truth about their religion. They had no creeds to proclaim the true nature of the gods, no precise definitions of faith, no such thing as orthodoxy or heresy. What you believe was your own business, but how you worshipped was a matter for public gossip. The New Testament we have today consists of four Gospels, 13 letters attributed to Paul, eight letters attributed to other apostolic figures, a history, the book of Acts, and an apocalypse, the book of Revelation. That makes 27 books. Mercifully, Catholics, Orthodox and Protestants have the same books in the same order in their respective libraries. As so often, the odd man out is the collection used by the Ethiopian Orthodox. This includes another eight books. In other traditions, these additional books are regarded as books of church order and letters by the early church fathers. Nice to know, but not so compelling that they have to be included in the Bible. But a lot of those extra Ethiopian books were mooted for inclusion into the canon for centuries and just missed out. How did Christianity arrive at this collection? The answer is simply, we don't know. Most texts revered as sacred by the ancient Christians have been lost, destroyed, forgotten, or simply not copied. After the death of Jesus, Christians produced a huge variety of books. Few of these entered the canon. Floating around were Gospels, attributed to the Apostles Thomas, John, Philip, and Peter, and many others. Ancient Christians knew far more Gospels than the four we know today. They also knew many more books of the deeds of the Apostles. We know of books called the Acts of Pilate and the Acts of Andrew, again amongst many others. No less than two other Apocalypses were attributed to Peter and two to Paul. 
Christians had a large bookshop to choose from. In the century after the death of Jesus, Christians did just fine without a sacred library. Jesus' clubs had no written accounts of Jesus' life and teachings. When the earliest Christians appealed to writings, they cited the Jewish Old Testament in its Greek form, the Septuagint. The Old Testament scriptures provided the scaffolding within which the life, sayings and achievements of Jesus were constructed. The Jesus clubs were slow to realise that they needed a library separate from the Jewish writings. That library, the New Testament, was three centuries in the making. Until about the year 400, Christianity lacked a central authority that could impose its will and determine which books were sacred and which not. The church was run by archbishops and bishops whose remit ended with their diocese. These were the people who decided which books their particular flocks should be reading. The collection of sacred Christian books remained in contention for centuries. No missionary ever arrived in a town with a big book they called the New Testament. Until as late as the age of printing, say from 1450 on, the New Testament was rarely disseminated as a single book. Instead, it was circulated in several packages. The most common were the Gospels, on the one hand, and the letters of Paul on the other. Some congregations might have heard of Acts and the general epistles, and others may have used Revelation. The sacred library we call the New Testament came together very slowly. By the year 150, three or four generations after the death of Jesus, all the evidence we have says that only a few books were in wide circulation. Most people preferred stories passed down orally. The Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, was the only written sacred text that Christians recognised. As long as Christians could allegorically interpret the Old Testament as about Jesus, they had no need for new books. The man who forced Christians to take stock and decide which books they really believed in was Marcion. He is the most important figure in early Christianity that you have never heard of. He flourished a century after the death of Jesus. The apostles were long, long gone. The apostolic fathers, Clement, Ignatius, Polycarp and Papias, successors to the apostles, were also gone. Marcion was a wealthy ship owner, the son of a bishop from Asia Minor. He arrived in Rome around 140. The Roman Empire was in a golden age. Never again would it be so prosperous. The third and final Jewish revolt against the Romans had been decisively quashed. Jewish variants of Christianity faded into historical memory with the destruction of Jerusalem by the Emperor Hadrian. Christianity was now almost entirely Gentile. We cannot really know how many Christians the empire contained. One guess is less than 10,000, mainly scattered in towns in Greece, Egypt, Asia Minor and in Italy. In Rome, which probably already had the largest Jesus club in the empire, Marcion made a spectacular entrance by donating 200,000 sesterces to the church. In those days, a Roman legion received an annual salary of 1,000 sesterces, and a senior officer in the army, 40,000 sesterces. Marcion's gift was huge. Marcion started teaching doctrines that struck the Roman Christians as rather off. 
he said that the God in the Septuagint, the God of the Jews, was not the father of Jesus. In the Old Testament, God is petulant, angry and violent. The Jewish God demanded adherence to his law. He punished the Jews when they failed. Now, this God was not evil, but rigorously just. Since no one kept his laws perfectly, he was a wrathful God. Marcion held all this to be irrelevant to the new religion of Christianity. Marcion held the Jewish scriptures to be historically true, and Judaism true in its own terms. But Judaism had nothing to do with Christianity. The Old Testament was the scripture of someone else's religion. In his view, Jesus was the son and revealer of a different God. This God had not given the law to Moses and would not judge mankind. The father of Jesus was a God of perfect love and righteousness. He would punish no one. He brought reconciliation, redemption, life. The God of Jesus came into the world to save people from the vengeful God of the Jews. Jesus' God was previously unknown to the world. Marcion sometimes calls him God the Stranger. Jesus appeared out of the blue. He accomplished what no mortal could possibly have hoped for. Jesus paid the penalty for other people's sins to save them from the anger of the Jewish God. Marcion decided to throw out the Old Testament. He created a wholly new set of scriptures. Marcion saw Paul as the real founder of Christianity. Paul was the only person to really understand Jesus. Paul transmitted the gracious universality of Jesus' message in opposition to the harsh dictates of the just God of the Jews. Marcion saw Paul's emphasis on grace and newness. He understood the radical nature of Paul's egalitarianism and the intimate connection Paul made between salvation and freedom. He saw the implication of Paul for the poor and disenfranchised. Marcion called his sacred scriptures the Apostolicon, the Book of the Apostle. At its heart were ten of Paul's letters. Marcion included one other book, Portions of the Gospel of Luke. We have no idea why he chose Luke. Perhaps this was the only gospel he knew. Perhaps because Luke was said to be a companion to Paul. Perhaps because Luke is the most Gentile-oriented of the Gospels. Luke shows least interest in the Jews that Marcion held were irrelevant to Christianity. In many places in the letters and Luke, the authors seem to believe that the Creator God mentioned in Jewish scripture actually was the father of Jesus Christ. Marcion decided these were adulterations by the disciples and removed them. Marcion expurgated the books in his Apostolicon. Marcion was the first person to say to Christians, I have a list of sacred scriptures. When he presented his teachings and canon, the Roman elders returned his money. The Roman Jesus clubs held that Jewish scripture was also their scripture, and the God of the Jews also the father of Jesus. Rejected by Christians in Rome, Marcion evangelized on his own. His Judaism-free version of Christianity proved immensely popular and more intelligible to pagans. For centuries, his organization rivaled mainstream Christianity. The church fathers were terrified by its success. To them, Marcion was the firstborn of Satan. Volumes were written attacking him. Marcion's organization was only crushed after the power of the Roman state was enlisted in the late 300s to assert orthodox Christianity and to destroy deviance. 
The whole idea of a cannon only became a huge issue because of a technological development, the invention of the book or codex. Before some Roman soul invented the thing we call a book, all writing intended to endure was inscribed in scrolls. When you see the word book in ancient Greek or Latin or Hebrew, they mean a scroll, not the thing we call a book. If you wanted to read a portion from the middle of the prophet Isaiah, say, you had to unroll the scroll and unroll and unroll. When you had finished, you rolled the whole thing back up. You needed a very large table and much patience. If you wanted to move between different sections of Isaiah, you would spend most of your time unrolling and rolling. Since sticky notes had yet to be invented, there was no way to bookmark a portion of the scroll. You noted a passage of interest, then unroll, roll, unroll to move to the next passage. A big work like Isaiah was made of several scrolls kept in a box or basket. In a library in Alexandria, Isaiah might have been divided into four scrolls. In a library in Jerusalem, three. A scholar from out of town, wishing to read Isaiah, could have spent hours unrolling and rolling to find a passage. The books of the New Testament were almost certainly originally written on scrolls. You can see that in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke. Both compressed the material in Mark to make their books fit on the largest possible scroll. Sometime around the time of Marcion, a very bright spark indeed cut up a scroll into pages. He or she sewed them together to make a codex. It is entirely possible that this bright spark was a Christian. No more rolling and unrolling. With a codex, it was easy to flip between passages and to insert bookmarks between pages to keep track of passages of interest. A scroll was only ever written on one side. You could write on both sides of a page in a codex. Your papyrus or vellum costs were halved. A codex was much, much smaller than a scroll. A basket that could hold all the scrolls of the Old Testament was the size of a dishwasher. A codex of the Old Testament could fit into a large satchel. The Christian church adopted the codex with great enthusiasm. Almost all ancient New Testament manuscripts that we have now are codices, not scrolls. The invention of the codex created a theological problem. If you kept all your sacred scriptures as a bunch of scrolls in a big basket, you could easily add new scrolls or throw out old ones. If you decided that the book of Daniel or Revelation was not really scripture, you just threw their scrolls out. The contents of the basket was fluid. Once Christians started creating codices, they had to decide what goes in and what goes out. Adding pages to a codex was a very expensive affair. Removing them left obvious signs of defacement. You could no longer go to the basket and discreetly dispose of those scrolls you hated or drop in some new scrolls. Each codex bore witness to a specific canon. Marcion scared the Jesus clubs of the city of Rome. They didn't accept Marcion's list of just the Gospel of Luke and ten letters by Paul. Surely there were more prized books. Marcion was way out of bounds rejecting the Jewish scriptures. Jesus was the whole point of the Jewish scriptures. Passage after passage in the Old Testament gave witness to Jesus. That period from 150 to 200 is when Christians decided their library of sacred books was more than just the library of the Jews. 
It is only in that period that Christians began to justify their own beliefs by quoting these new books rather than the Jewish canon. Christians were using all the four Gospels we know today. No one called them Gospels, euangelion in Greek, meaning glad tidings or good news. They were called memoirs or memories. The first person to have made a solid list of Christian books is Irenaeus, Bishop of Lyon in France. He worked from 175 to 200 AD, a generation after Marcion's death. He claims to have known Polycarp. If the chain can be trusted, and it can't, then the Apostle John taught Polycarp, and Polycarp taught Irenaeus. The Roman Empire was prosperous and peaceful. That would all come crashing down a few decades later. Perhaps there were 200,000 Christians in the empire, a tiny fraction in a population of 60 million. The Roman state regarded the Christians as vaguely off. Perhaps a little subversive, the state had no especial gripe with Christians. No one was systematically persecuting Christians. Christians were only ever dragged into court when a neighbour decided he didn't like them. Irenaeus is famous for his book Against Heresies, a vast volume directed at everyone who disagreed with his understanding of Christianity. His work provides us with invaluable information about Christian variants. Irenaeus was adamant that Marcion was truncating rather than creating a canon. Irenaeus said there was not one gospel, Marcion's Luke, but the four gospels we know today. He is the first person to say that. Irenaeus' canon is very similar to our modern one, but with a few significant differences. He is one of the first to accept Revelation as a sacred scripture, and the first person to cite the book of Acts. The lengthiest books in the New Testament, Luke and Acts, each clock in at around 20,000 words in English translation. We know from other authors living around the time of Irenaeus, 200 AD, and in the 50 years after, that Christians had not worked out which books were sacred and which just a good read. Somewhere in this period, intellectual Christians decided that their sacred books were additional to and separate from the Jewish Tanakh a collection they decided to call the New Testament. Check out the YouTube version of this episode, which has accompanying visuals, including maps, charts, timelines, photos, illustrations, and diagrams. I'm Mark Vinette, and I hope you're enjoying the ride.